bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, May 3rd, 2011. This week, Congress returns to Washington, D.C., and I'll start with an update on what lies ahead for lawmakers in the coming weeks. Then, I'll turn to renewable energy news, where I'll discuss a new fact sheet about the investment tax credit that's available online. I'll also discuss new research released by the Department of Energy's National Renewable Energy Laboratory. In our long housing tax credit discussion, I'll review some highlights of the Joint Center for Housing Studies' new report about the nation's rental housing. I'll also share some information at the state level about the need for affordable rental housing in Vermont and a proposed state long-term housing tax credit in Minnesota. In historic tax credit news, I have more state-level news, this time about legislation to extend Louisiana's state historic tax credit. In new market tax credit news, I'll preview our upcoming new market tax credit conference and workshops that are being held in Washington, D.C. in June. So if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, we start with lawmakers returning to Washington, D.C. this week. They face a full host of legislative issues. Congress was greeted with a letter by Secretary Geithner that said that the national debt ceiling would be reached on or around May 16th. This date's consistent with two previous letters that Secretary Geithner has sent. However, this differs from the two previous letters through various accounting and other measures that Treasury could now forestall exceeding the debt limit until around August 2nd. This August 2nd date is much later than estimated in previous letters. The consequences of this later date simply means there's more time for legislative wrangling. This week, on May 5th, members of each caucus will meet with Vice President Biden to, hopefully, begin negotiating a deficit reduction plan. The group, which I've been referring to as the Gang of Seven, consists of, in addition to Vice President Biden, four Democrats and two Republicans. On the Democratic side, you have Assistant Minority Leader in the House, Representative Clyburn. You have Ways and Means Committee member, Chris Van Hollen. You have Senate Finance Committee Chairman, Max Baucus. And you have Senate Appropriations Committee Chairman, Daniel Inouye. On the Republican side, you have Senate Minority Whip, John Kyle, and House Majority Leader, Eric Cantor. Now, the first meeting, as I mentioned, is on May 5th. Unfortunately, it's looking like it won't be much more than in a photo-op session, with follow-up meetings potentially having more impact. Now, many commentators are awaiting a possible deficit reduction proposal from the Gang of Six in the Senate. This is a group of three Democrat and three Republican senators. If they do come to agreement and release a proposal, it would likely happen next week. The government affairs law firm Williams & Jensen noted in their recent Washington update that the Gang of Six plan would include $3 of spending cuts for every $1 of tax increases, or elimination of tax expenditures. Williams & Jensen also noted that another budget 
reform proposal has been offered by Senators Bob Corker, a Republican from Tennessee, and Senator Claire McCaskill, a Democrat from Missouri. Their proposal caps spending at 20.6% of gross domestic product, or GDP. The current level of spending is 24.7% of GDP, so their proposal provides for a transition to 20.6% GDP over time. Now, whatever agreement is ultimately reached in order to increase the debt ceiling, it will set the stage for a number of related deliberations, including the fiscal year 2012 budget as well as tax reform. Speaking of tax reform, I do note that rumors started swirling last week that the administration may release a tax reform proposal in the coming weeks. Now, for a more detailed look at what lies ahead for Congress in the coming weeks, I encourage you to read my Washington Wire column in the May issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credit. The column describes how these discussions may play out and what the results could mean for the tax credit community. You can read the Washington Wire online at www.novoco.com backslash journal. I'd also like to remind our listeners that today, Tuesday, May 3rd, the Senate Finance Committee is holding a hearing regarding whether the current distribution of tax, burdens, and benefits is equitable. And on Thursday, May 5th, the Senate Banking Committee is expected to hold a hearing on HUD's fiscal year 2012 budget. HUD Secretary Sean Donovan would likely testify. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit News, last week, Novogratz and Company posted a link on its website to an energy tax credit fact sheet that was recently released by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Now, the March 2001 Energy Tax Credit Fact Sheet discusses the Energy Investment Tax Credit, or ITC, and how it works. The document also discusses how and why banks may choose to invest in energy ITCs. Now, while neither the Community Reinvestment Act, CRA, nor the implementing regulations specifically address loans or investments in solar energy facilities. The fact sheet, though, does confirm that if the energy ITC facility meets the definition of community development, as defined in CRA regulations, then the loan or investment would receive positive consideration, provided, of course, that geographic requirements are also met. This fact sheet is an excellent source for banks considering investing or lending to solar ITC projects. It's also an excellent resource for solar developers that are seeking investments and loans by banks. If you have particular questions about bank investing in solar ITCs, I would encourage you to call my partner, Stephen Tracy, in our San Francisco office. Stephen can be reached at 415-356-8000. Now, turning to the importance of state policies to clean energy development, a recent report from the U.S. Department of Energy's, DOE's, National Renewable Energy Laboratory contains several findings on the effect of state policies on the development of renewable energy and energy efficiency. The findings are in a report called State of the States 2010, The Role of Policy in Clean Energy Market Transformation. The report attempts to quantify the connection between energy efficiency and renewable energy policy that are collectively referred to as clean energy, so it attempts to quantify the connection between clean energy and actual reductions in energy use and increases 
and renewable resource development. The results show that the longer policies are in place, the more they drive clean energy development. This indicates that policy longevity and the resulting market certainty for investors may be an important aspect of effectiveness. The report notes that it appears that the current set of policies influences wind and solar development more than the development of biomass and geothermal renewable resources. The report also notes that the implementation of a suite of policies may be more effective at driving clean energy development than a single or small number of mechanisms. The report also shows significant connections between reduced energy use and building codes and, in some cases, energy efficiency resource standards. The report also shows, and this isn't too surprising, a connection between reduced energy use and the price of energy. In local housing tax credit news, a study released last week revealed that the number of renters that spend more than half their income for housing has reached record highs in the wake of the Great Recession. Last week's report from the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies found that half of the nation's renters spend more than 30% on rent and utilities. Moreover, the report found that many renters pay a great deal more than 30%. In fact, the Joint Center says that 10.1 million households spend more than half their incomes on housing costs. That's equivalent of one in four renters. The report found that exacerbating this rental crisis is a dwindling supply of affordable housing units. According to the Joint Center for Housing Studies, the country's affordable housing stock has lost more than 700,000 federally subsidized units since the mid-1990s. The paper goes on to note that the Log Building Tax Credit stands nearly alone in replenishing these units. The Joint Center says that if the Log Building Tax Credit program continues to add units at its current pace, the tax credit will become the single largest source of assisted housing within the next few years. The report also emphasized the importance of rental housing policy, which it said has a significant role to play in preserving affordable housing. The Joint Center paper is entitled America's Rental Housing, Meeting Challenges, Building on Opportunities. You can find a copy of the report online at www. Dot jchs.harvard.edu. And in remarks about the report's release last week, HUD Secretary Sean Donovan highlighted the long housing tax credit success, stating that it is a critical tool for affordable multifamily production. Secretary Donovan also underscored the risk to the long housing tax credit in tax reform, noting that it is one of the largest corporate tax expenditures in the Internal Revenue Code. NCSHA says, the National Council of State Housing Agencies, says that it has since contacted Secretary Donovan and urged him to support the long housing tax credit strongly during the tax reform debate. Now, during the same event, Secretary Donovan also created a bit of a stir when he suggested that the Obama administration is open to exploring whether a new tax credit for renters should be created as part of broad discussions about tax reform. MarketWatch.com reports that in speaking to reporters after the speech, Secretary Donovan said the proposal is, quote, something that is worth looking at, close quote. 
as a way to boost government support for renters. The site says Secretary Donovan warned that any new tax breaks would have to be offset in other parts of the tax code so that they wouldn't add to the deficit. In that article, MarketWatch noted that the government currently provides significantly larger subsidies for home ownership than it does for rental housing. The Market Watch article cited a 2009 report from the Congressional Budget Office that concluded that the federal government provided $230 billion in subsidies for homeowners compared with $60 billion for renters. Now, this is a topic that I have followed closely over the last several years. And in a recent blog posting, I discussed the CVO report that was cited by Market Watch and I discussed the disparity between federal support for home ownership and rural housing. I'd encourage you to read that discussion and share your thoughts in the comments section of my blog. You can find the blog online at novagradic.wordpress.com or just go to your web browser and search for Notes from Novagradic. Turning to the state level, finding an affordable apartment in Vermont is a growing challenge for the average renter. This, according to a report released last month by the Vermont Housing Finance Agency. The the annual report, entitled Between a Rock and a Hard Place, Housing and Wages in Vermont, found that 47% of renters can't afford their housing costs. This makes Vermont the 17th least affordable state in the country. This according to the American Community Survey. You can find the report at www.vhfa.org. Moving west from Vermont, we find that Minnesota is considering a state low-income housing tax credit. Last week, Jim Roth, who's executive director of the Metropolitan Consortium of Community Developers, wrote an editorial for the Minnesota newspaper Finance and Commerce that urges lawmakers to pass a state low-income housing tax credit. Now, House File 1319 and Senate File 838 would create a Minnesota housing tax credit. And if passed by the legislature, the bills would allow the state to allocate a tax credit for new construction and rehabilitation projects. Now, Jim Roth notes that the Minnesota proposal is modeled after successful programs at the national and state level. You can find more information about state low income housing tax credits online at www.taxcredithousing.com. In historic tax credit news, Lawmakers in Louisiana are considering legislation in the coming weeks to extend for four years the existing Historic Building Rehabilitations Program. The program is currently set to expire at the end of 2011. Governor Bobby Jindal released a statement last week where he outlined his support for a package of legislative initiatives, and included in that package was HB 349, a bill that was introduced by Representative Walt Legger that would renew and extend the Commercial Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit. The current program allows taxpayers who are rehabilitating a historic structure that is located in a downtown development or cultural product district to earn a state income and corporation franchise tax on up to 25% of rehab costs. HB 349 extends the sunset date four years to January 1, 2016. Supporters of the program say that the tax credit helps increase tourism, increases property values, boosts downtown areas, and boosts cultural districts. Furthermore, it increases business activity. 
To that end, and to demonstrate that, a recently completed economic and fiscal impact analysis did find that the Louisiana Historic Testament Program has generated $651 million in historic restoration construction at the cost of $140 million in tax credits. The construction operations of the projects, supported by the Louisiana Historic Tax Credit, created a total of $142 million in new state tax revenue. This as compared to $140 million in tax credits. The projects supported by the HTC have created more than 11,000 construction jobs and more than 5,700 permanent jobs in the state. In addition to the governor's support, the bill is reported to have broad bipartisan support in the legislature. However, the bill could face some opposition because the state is projected to have a $1.6 billion budget shortfall in the new fiscal year that begins July 1. You can find a copy of HB 349 online at www.historictaxcredits.com. In New Market Tax Credit news, I want to remind our listeners of our upcoming spring New Market Tax Credit Conference. Now, we're going to start off on Wednesday, June 8th with three, that's right, three pre-conference workshops. There's one on the basics, which we entitle NMTC 101. We also have a workshop on compliance, which is NMTC 202. And then our third workshop will be on applying for New Market Tax Credits. This third workshop will also be available over the web as a webinar. You can go online to www.novaco.com to register for any of these workshops as well as for the conference. Now the conference itself kicks off on Thursday, and our conference is going to open up with a Washington Wire panel, and then we're going to move into a mid-year review. The mid-year review will focus on CDFI fund as well as the IRS, including from the IRS's perspective, the status of proposed regulations. We're going to then move into a keynote presentation, a keynote speech from Brandon Carlton with the Office of the Legislative Tax Council. We then move into concurrent sessions. One set of of panels on a concurrent session will address who the new investors are, where they are, and what they want, as well as We'll talk about economic and community impacts, identifying worthy impacts. And then we'll close that set of concurrent sessions with a panel focused on non-real estate new market tax credit transactions. And then concurrent with that set, we'll have an application tips panel, followed by an exit strategy panel in terms of how to prepare for the exit strategy, and then secondly, a follow-up panel on actually dealing with the exit now that the program is approaching 10 years old. From there, we're going to move into a networking anniversary dinner from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. on Thursday night, where we'll celebrate the upcoming 10-year anniversary of the New Market Tax Credit. From there, we're going to move into, on Friday, opening up with a question and answer on Friday morning at 9 o'clock, and then we're going to move into a compliance panel at 10, and a smaller deal panel at 11, and then the conference will conclude. And I'd also note that we'll have a meeting of the New Market Tax Credit Working Group during the conference. So if you're interested in learning more about the New Market Tax Credit Working Group, I'd encourage you to contact my partner, Brad Elphick, in our Atlanta, Georgia office. And if you have any questions about the conference, please send an email to cpas at novaco.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. 
please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. Among other things, next week I'll discuss the National Low Income Housing Coalition's annual Out of Reach Report, which was released yesterday. I'll also review HUD's revised regulations for multifamily rental housing, also released yesterday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening.